Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Hey, a summer weekend, a long weekend. I hope you're enjoying it. And I'm really glad you are with me. I mean, lots of stuff happened this week. We had the Federal Reserve bump their interest rates by three quarters of a percent, but the market smiled. I'll talk with Victor Adair about why that happened. I've also got futurist Richard Warzel, probably Canada's best known futurist. I want to talk about the future of work and many other things, but I'm fascinated to see post-pandemic, has the work world changed? Because the implications for the economy are huge, whether you're in commercial real estate or maybe you're one of the smaller businesses that services those big office towers. I'll talk to Richard Warzel about that. Uh, much happening with Aussie Jerk in the world of, uh, of real estate I want you to check in on. I've got to talk inflation again and really fascinating what's going on. doesn't matter which side of the border you're on, whether you're in Europe, but the different factors that contribute to inflation Maybe they're not reading such a consistent direction. I'll talk with Michael Levy about that. Plus, of course, hey, I, by the way, I have got a great quote of the week about something that's going on. We're going to talk a lot about energy today. Why? Because it's still the pivotal issue, what's going on in that direction, along with interest rates. All of that has a direct impact on your personal finances. But first, I think the irony seems to be lost on most Canadians that Canada's saving grace when it comes to economics and finances is due to oil and gas. And if politicians could just think for just a moment, you know, other resource industries like copper, but also agricultural could also play an oversized role. But recognizing economic and financial opportunity is hardly the government's strength. I mean, actually, it's far worse. They're not interested. This is what's so astounding. So many of the political class are simply not interested in economics or financial stability. It's not high on the list of their priorities. Instead, in fact, they've worked relentlessly to undermine, for example, the Canadian energy advantage. And now, with the move to restrict the use of fertilizer, which is undeniably part of the World Economic Forum and COP26 agenda, well, that's another major opportunity for Canada that's about to be ignored. Not that they don't have a major contribution right now, but it could be more in today's world. As I said, the great irony is that the most positive economic and financial aspect going forward, as I say, the saving grace for Canada is going to be the oil and gas industry, the most vilified commodity in the country. I mean, the advantage of having massive oil and gas reserves can't be overstated. Already the world is being divided into the energy haves and the energy have-nots. And the have-nots are already suffering the consequences from Germany to Sri Lanka. And let me be clear, this is a forecast for money talks. We're nowhere near the end of this, not even close to the worst consequences. These are the early innings because we have a structural problem in the energy market after seven to eight years of underinvestment, which is a direct result of the war on fossil fuels and the wholly unrealistic timeline for the transition to renewables, along with the failure to even consider a practical plan. But should we be surprised? Come on. The approach to climate change, including the transition to renewables, is dominated by politicians and activists, members of the media, educational establishment, who have rejected the essence of science. Heck, it's the essence of progress, which is you got to allow questions. you got to encourage critical thinking as P.G. O'Rourke observed, we're willing to do just about anything to save the planet except read some research or test our ideas. Forrest Gump put it another way, stupid is as stupid does. Sadly, the no questions allowed, the failure to think critically, isn't restricted to just the climate change 
discussion and the transition to renewables. No, it's the same attitude that dominates the government's COVID agenda. Don't you dare question it or else. And now we're two years later, the results demand a rethink to many aspects of the response uh, to COVID from a cost benefit analysis of the lockdowns to the effectiveness of vaccine mandates. But most of all, we need a discussion, a robust discussion that welcomes opposing views, but I'm not gonna hold my breath. For me personally, I'm saddened by, the, saddened by the role the media played, has chosen to play. Of course, there are some very noteworthy exceptional uh, exceptions, but the push to support the government agenda, I think is reflected in the narrative or the negative perceptions of the mainstream media that poll after poll confirms. And again, maybe that's not surprising in Canada where the biggest media player is the CBC and other major media outlets directly receive government money while the criteria for receiving the money is not disclosed, which not surprisingly, I think undermines confidence for many in the public regarding the media's independence. But attacking open discussion, discouraging questions and critical thinking is hardly the formula for progress in any area. I'm still astounded at the failure, even at the highest level of government to understand the importance of energy in our lives. Astounded at the total capture of the government, along with many in the media and academia, of the climate agenda, but it was so blatantly devoid of common sense that it refused to acknowledge the practical fundamentals like wind and solar or intermittent power, or that petroleum is used in over 6,000 products, that natural gas is essential to, uh, essential to the production of nitrogen-based fertilizers and the chemical industry. I mean, the list just keeps going on, including like demand from emerging markets for energy is going to increase. I mean, how can you make effective policy when the level of ignorance is that profound? Well, you can't, and they didn't. Over the last couple of months, though, the most unpopular comment I've made with the climate alarmism crowd, and I'll just finish with this, uh, even topping the backlash, by the way, I received for pointing out that there was and continues to be no plan for obtaining the necessary raw resources raw materials to build out the renewable grid. But it's to suggest that no group has done more to derail the climate agenda than, oh, the climate crowd. Just look at the polls. Climate change isn't anywhere near to be seen at the top list of concerns. In fact, it's the opposite. We're worried about the cost of energy, the repercussions for shortages of oil and gas dominate, including inflation. In a big blow to the climate agenda, the European Union's upping their imports of coal and their production, by the way from Australia, South America, Colombia, South Africa. This is after years of calling coal the dirtiest energy source. By the way, global uh, coal consumption for the world this year is forecast to match the record highs we had in the past. It's gonna be a record this year. The entire climate agenda though, needs a practical, realistic rethink. Perhaps uh, the current crisis is gonna be the catalyst. Although I'm sure for some, I have my doubts. So much more planned for you today. And just a reminder, by the way, I want you to join, join me on Michael Campbell's uh, Money Talks on Facebook and on Money Talks tweets. And I'll tell you why, just a quick thing here. What we do is we put up a ton of stuff that you're not seeing in the mainstream media that gives you things to think about, but I think they're in line with some of the major trends. I look at the world through this lack of and diminishing confidence we have in government. Well, there's so many examples. And the reason that you should be paying attention to them is you've got to protect yourself financially. I think the people in Europe, for example, are going to find out their failure to understand or pay attention to the climate policy is going to devastate some people. Well, how can't it? 
we're talking about forward prices for electricity that are literally up a thousand percent. Could you imagine if your electricity bill went up a thousand percent? Yeah, it's trouble. We're moving up that ladder of income. So you've got to know what's going on. Yep, that's all I'll say. That's my big push. But join us on Michael Campbell's uh, or Money Talks tweets and Michael Campbell's Facebook on uh, Money Talks on Facebook. I just think it's important. Nothing to do with what I've got to say, but I include just tons of stuff that I researched during the weekend. There is a lot of research that I think will find it interesting to broaden the context of our debates. Michael Levy joins me now, of course, the big subject, and it's going to continue this way, is what's interest rates, what's inflation happening. But, Mike, you know, one of the big numbers, of course, because they're the biggest retailer around, is Walmart. I think that surprised people. They came out this week with their numbers, and, uh, you know, they weren't what analysts expected. I don't think what many people were expected, because they're sort of a bell ringer for what the consumer's doing in the States. is certainly a huge chunk of the consumers, and it wasn't positive news. It wasn't. And the real surprise is, is they're coming out with a warning and it's weeks ahead of its earnings report. So there's some information out there that is extremely important that it gets into the hands of investors because they know it on a corporate level and they could act on it. But they are sending a warning that adjusted earnings for the uh, for for the current fiscal year are, are going to fall as much as 13 percent, Mike. I mean, yeah. that is huge. And they just, you know, it's material. They have to put it out there. But it's not often that you see a reporting company coming out midterm between quarters and giving a warning like that to everybody that uh, they've got a problem. They've got a big problem on their hands. Yeah, fair comment. It's not the normal reporting period for them, but they felt the need to do it. But it's also Walmart. I mean, that's the other big part of the story. Oh. You know, uh, you know, and it's it's certainly a certain level or, or segment of the consumer market. The U.S. again remind everyone listening that it's much more important what consumers are doing in the U.S. than what they do in Canada. Seventy percent of their economy is consumption. So when yeah. the, you know when a huge chunk of the consumer market's been backing off, uh, obviously they have. You know, a lot of analysts are reading into it. It's just more fuel to the fire to that uh, that recessionary debate that even seems hotter this week than uh, in past weeks. Well, yeah, and it really is. But, Mike, this is a buildup of the supply chain when they weren't getting merchandise and there was a shortage of merchandise. Prices were going up because of the shortage. All of a sudden, merchandise is landing on their pallets and their warehouses, everything that's backed up is landing. And it's not just Walmart, it's a Walmart, it's Target, it's Kohl's, it's all your big retailers in the US. As demand starts to go down, they're loaded with inventory, a stockpiles of unwanted merchandise, and it, it, there's an un, actually an un, unpredictable swing of demand. And uh, they really are going to be stuck with that inventory unless they start to lower prices and lower prices significantly takes us to uh, page two, inflation. Yeah. 
Well, let me come back to just before we leave that one is it is interesting that it's sort of the lower to mid uh, shopping area, you know, for income families are getting hit the most. That's consistent uh, with really the pandemic. You looked at the upper end, they didn't suffer at the lower end of the income scale, certainly did suffer. The other one that's interesting, uh, talking to some analysts uh, who do retail analysts is that maybe they also bought the wrong stuff. That when they came to reorder to stock the shelves because they're worried about, <laughs> excuse me, supply chain disruptions, they were pretending it was 2019. Well, what about the return to work? Because that will create a massive shift. So I think that's just another element we want to introduce there, that maybe they're buying the wrong stuff because the economy has permanently shifted in some occupations. They're just never going to return to the office for five days a week again. It might be three, might be two. So that has an impact. And it's just interesting to see they're sort of stuck with this. But as you said, Mike, hey, that could be good news for consumers. Well, it could. And by the way, what you're saying there is really resonating and is going to resonate with our listeners because the broad swath of the listeners to Money Talks are exactly who you're talking about and talking to. It's affecting. This is affecting you and I and them. It's not somebody out there in some hinterland. It's us and our shopping habits and what's going to happen. But the second thing is, and this is on a Bloomberg opinion. I just love it when they come out with these. Um, regular readers of this newsletter will likely recall that just 24 hours ago, we said Walmart's profit warning was bad news for the economy. Well, let's keep that in mind because is it bad news inflation-wise? All the stuff that you were just talking about on the shelves, too much of it, some of it can be the wrong stuff. And they've got to lower prices and lower prices significantly in order to move that merchandise, which goes full circle to Walmart being down or forecasting being off 13% in profits for the fiscal yeah, year. But, but it's just a great example of, you know, this whole, the number of variables that are in play right now, you know, as you say, that would be a positive for the inflation to reduce because they're lowering prices. You know, at the same time, it's a weaker economy. Maybe that brings uh, a little, you know, and that I want to make sure I'm making myself clear. That debate is still remains to be seen. They've had two negative quarters of real GDP dropping. That's uh, after adjusted for inflation. But others will say, no, you don't do it that way. I, the debate is just so robust. But you're pointing out that you can see how the variables that are in play. You go, oh, my goodness, no. Walmart is the most important retailer. The economy is getting weak. Oh, wait a second. That's good news for interest rates. Oh, wait a minute. That's good news for prices. And talking about prices, because we've been talking about it so much, is as the retailers are cutting prices to move merchandise, gasoline prices have been coming down and coming down significantly, nowhere near where they were uh, um, it, six months ago, a year ago, but they're coming down and you add that to the fact that uh, the cost of shopping, maybe not food, but general merchandise is coming down also and that's going to impact inflation even more or and less inflation at least. And that's why if you tune into any of the American business shows, their heads are spinning right now. But ours aren't, Mike. Thanks for taking the time. Have a great week. You too, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week. Biomass as an energy source. Well, gosh, it sounds so good. After all, it's not oil, no, or worse, it's not coal. It's a clean energy source, at least according to the European Union and Britain. As I said, sounds good. But I think many people would be surprised to find out they're talking about burning wood pellets. 
If you've ever used a fire pit or made a campfire, I think you know it's more than a stretch to suggest that it's clean burning. And that brings me to the quote of the leak by analysts at Doomberg, who I hope to get in the show, by the way, in early fall. In quotes, the European Union and Britain are not only incentivizing a return to the primitive concept of burning wood for energy on a massive scale, but they also claim doing so is carbon neutral. Spoiler alert, it isn't, not even close. Nearly 40% of Europe's so-called renewable energy is currently obtained by combusting wood. Nearly 40%. And a sizable portion of what's being burned is derived from clear-cutting forests in the U.S. In a farce so perverted and obscene that it can only be the work of bloated and arrogant bureaucracies, a carbon accounting loophole is causing huge amounts of CO2 to be pumped into the atmosphere today that will take decades to abate using natural means. End of quote. You know what? Maybe I should repeat that last part. In a farce so perverted and obscene that it can only be the work of bloated and arrogant bureaucracy, a carbon accounting loophole is causing huge amounts of CO2 to be bumped into the atmosphere today that will take decades to abate using natural means. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. Somebody who I've always enjoyed uh, chatting with is uh, Canada's leading futurist, Richard Warzel. I mean, look, he's got a list of clients that are incredible, whether it's IBM or Microsoft. Uh, he's talked to the clerk of the House of Commons, National Defense. I mean, the, re- the list just goes on. You're getting the idea here. And I'm really fortunate to be able to have him join us today, Richard Warzel. Richard, thanks for finding time for us. Much appreciated. Mike, it's always a pleasure to be here. I'm just thinking over the years, we were talking long ago to begin years and years ago that uh, I'm in the future right now, (laughs) you know, but let let me start with a a couple of subjects. I want to be broad based, but the one that one of the things that's obviously on people's mind in the pandemic, post pandemic period is the nature of work. You know, I mean, how many of us, uh, you know, worked from home, uh, you know, that never thought they were going to do that. How many are coming back, though? Because the surveys I read, that's not a popular proposition for at least a really significant chunk of people. They do not want to go back to the office five days a week and face that commute or whatever it is. No, that's true. Uh, the picture that you're, you're talking about is actually much bigger than that, though. But let's, let's start with the pandemic-caused changes in the workplace. The, um, we were always moving towards some sort of blend of virtual and in-person working, uh, partially because of the cost of downtown real estate. Um, So companies were finding that there was an economic reason to not want to have people come into the office. The accounting industry perhaps was led the way with that, with hot desking, because accountants usually spend a lot of time in their clients' offices. So they were among the first to have people visiting the office virtually or just from, uh, from time to time. What we're finding as the pandemic ebbs, I won't say it goes away because it's still with us, but as the effects of the pandemic ebb, is that people actually kind of, in some ways, they loved working from home because it meant they didn't have to commute. They could work in their pajamas or their sweatsuits. Um, They didn't have to deal with all sorts of in-office politics and so on. But on the other hand, they were also feeling that they weren't necessarily being given the credit for the work they were doing, that they were feeling that somehow they weren't visible enough. 
And the result is you're, and plus the fact that we're missing the other people in the office, that there's a social component to work that is very important. In fact, one of the biggest aspects, one of the biggest contributors to job satisfaction is how you get on with your, your co-workers. That's a big factor in work. What we're finding is the surveys that I've seen that people want to be back in the office some of the time. And the surveys that I'm seeing seem to indicate that it's something like between two and three days a week, and it kind of flickers back and forth. That people want to work from home, but not all the time. And they want to be in the office, but not all the time. So I think what we're going to find, and, and companies are finding that it's a financial boon not to have all these offices that sit you know, they're used eight to 10 hours a day and then are empty the rest of the time, but they're paying rent on and especially in expensive downtown cores. So that's an aspect. The virtual uh, work is going to continue. It was coming anyway, but this accelerated it dramatically. But beyond that, we're seeing a change in the workplace because technology has become so important. Um, I, more than 20 years ago, probably close to 30 years ago, I talked about how the workplace is shifting into different categories. You're going to have, um, you're going to have the gold collar worker, the, the creative worker, the, the superstar that is in demand uh, because of what they can do and how they do it. And those people will be paid in incredible amounts of money because they have skills that are in hot demand. Now that demand can change. I mean, I think very clearly, I saw that happen right before my eyes. Back in the mid nineties, um, somebody who could create a website was in immense demand and they could charge almost what they wanted because everybody needed to be online, but not many people had the skills to do it. And the tools were very primitive in those, those days. As the tools improved and as the number of people who developed that skill set in increased, all of a sudden it became just an ordinary skill. So people who were charging hundreds of dollars an hour were then charging $30 an hour. And now, I mean, they, they struggle just to get by. Um, so that that is a, a problem with being a gold collar worker is the skills that you have that are in such demand now may evaporate down the road. Then you've got journeymen, uh, using a, a sexist term, if you'll forgive me, it's, but it, it's one that's well known. Uh, people who have skills that are useful but replaceable. Um, and they get paid decent money. They get paid good money. They can own a house. They can have a car. They can have kids. They can have vacations. They're, they're in a good situation. They're not making superstar money, but they have solid, uh, solid credentials, and they can get good-paying jobs, and they often... Um, have a more, uh, a more reliable tenure than the superstars. Below that, you've got people who are working at or something related to minimum wage. These are the disposable workers. Um, and the, you know, this is the people that, that uh, serve you at Tim Hortons or McDonald's or the people that serve you in a, in a store or, or wherever. People who really don't have much upside, they don't have much leverage, they don't have skills that they can leave, use to, to move into something better. And then you've got the fourth group who are the chronically unemployable. They basically don't have any skills that people are willing to pay for, even at a subsistence level. 
And how well an economy does depends on what proportions of those four groups you have. Um, and what we're finding is that there is a, a thin strata of superstars, the gold collar workers, a fairly large strata of journeymen, and a much bigger group of people who are basically living paycheck to paycheck. But the big question is, and the big concern is, how many people are in that bottom group, chronically unemployable? And that, is, and that group is in many ways going to determine the future of work and the future of our economy. And what governments should be doing is figuring out what they can do to help people in those lower two strata, because they are going to determine the future of our economy. Uh, well, By the way, uh, I didn't talk about technology at all. Technology yeah, uh, is a big part of this, too. Yeah, I'll come back to that in a second. A, a, a couple of things. Uh, one of the things that the pandemic exposed was that there were at least, you know, the obvious classes of people. You know, I, I always was very uncomfortable with the the kind of comment that we're all in this together. And I'm saying, no, I am not ex experiencing the same difficulties and hardships as people, as you say, down uh, that lower um, skill level, you know, who right. had much more uncertainty. They're not choosing which house to live in. You know, right. or and and the technology, as I say, we'll get back to it. But the technology, I mean, I could access instantly, you know, whether it was mm -hmm. Zoom or what have you. Uh, I'm wondering if if that isn't going to then be exacerbated, like that division is going to be exacerbated. And I, I appreciate what you said. And I'll come back to the government's role in this. But it's it, to me, it just seems that not very hopeful that the very things we saw and I think the difficulties we saw are going to be not only with us, but probably growing. Yes, they are. Um, uh, do you want to get into the technology? Because that's going to have a big part of it. Yeah. Okay. So, yes, it, it certainly okay. is. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the past, the thing that, that, that politicians have been sensitive to, for good reason, in the past have been the outsourcing of jobs and the offshoring of jobs. Um, to, you know, with, particularly with the rise of the Internet, you were able to outsource anything that could be done over the phone to India or the anywhere in the Far East where people could speak English, India particularly because so many people do speak English, um, but almost anywhere. I mean, radiology uh, was being done offshore in third world countries that had radiologists uh, because they could just ship the images electronically. They would be looked at overnight and then shipped back um, for the next morning. Well, that, that affected radiologists here in North America, but it also deprived radio, uh, people in developing countries of radiologists who would otherwise serve them. So it had all sorts of pernicious effects. So that was the past where offshoring affected jobs in, in a big way. But the future is how technology is going to affect jobs and particularly, not exclusively, but particularly artificial intelligence. You, you're seeing, let me take one industry that I've actually worked on and worked with, and that's the legal industry, as well as accounting. But let's talk about the legal industry. The vast majority of work that is done in, in law is creating arguments that have, have been done over and over and over again. And a lot of that is now being done by machines, by artificial intelligence, rather than by law clerks and junior lawyers with the result that you're seeing an emptying out of those offices of junior people and law firms. That kind of thing is going to happen over and over again as computers become smarter and more able and as the tools to create artificial intelligence improve. 
we need to define what artificial intelligence is, by the way, because it's not well defined. But what that means is that going forward, we're going to see more and more people displaced in what were high-end jobs like accountants, like lawyers, by machines and technology. So really, the, there, it's not how much you're paid, but do you do the same work over and over again in your job, no matter how much you're paid? If you're in mergers and acquisitions, most of your, your job is spent writing documents that are basically boilerplate. They're adapted to different situations. But you can be in a high-end uh, corporate finance group and find yourself out, outplaced because a machine can do your work cheaper than you can and far faster. So artificial intelligence and technology generally is going to be now putting the bite on the workplace. And politicians aren't really focused on that. Uh, the other one that occurs to me is the onshoring, you know, it would be interesting kind of process because, of course, uh, this past week, you know, the big bill signed about chip makers as, uh, you right. know, as the U.S. sort of came to recognize, oh, my gosh, if China goes into Taiwan, that's all our chips. And we did get a taste of that in the pandemic, that, how disastrous that was for such a wide variety of industries with, you know, automo automotive sort of jumping out at me. And right. so you've got that sort of trend coming back. And the one you're saying, uh, you know, that we traditionally would have labeled those white collar jobs, but your point so well taken, anything repetitive, look out, you know, yes. within that. So there, there are two other things about, about the future of work that, that we need to talk about. Um, onshoring also has another, com, uh, another knock on effect. And that is we are retracting from globalization. Uh, globalization was a bonanza. It created a one-time boost in global economic activity that brought billions, hundreds of millions of people, maybe potentially a billion people or more, out of extreme poverty into some sort of working class. Um, a lot of that came from offshoring, but that's, that's another subject. But if we are now going to pull industries back, what we're doing is taking them away for good cause, we're taking them away from the most efficient producers and giving them to less efficient producers. So it's more efficient to produce chips in Taiwan, but there are real reasons why we don't want to do that. But the other factor is the boomers, people like me, who, and, and I don't know, maybe like you, <laughs> who are retiring and creating holes in the workforce. And, and not only that, they're not only we're not only losing bodies from the workforce, we're losing institutional memory, which in some cases is critical. Uh, there are, are classic stories of, for example, engineering firms, you know, and Joe retires and they, they give him a gold watch and they send him off to his retirement. And then they clean out his office and somebody says, well, what's in this old filing cabinet? They say, I don't know, just a bunch of old papers. And they throw them away. And four months later, they say, do you have the plans for that machine that we're creating for? Oh, God, that was in Joe's uh, filing cabinet. We threw that away. Does anybody else know how to do this? No. I wonder if we can get Joe on a consulting contract. Yeah. So it's not just the bodies that are being lost because the boomers are finally retiring, but also the institutional memory, which can be incredibly valuable. So those two things have to be added. The onshoring creates a, a decline in global economic activity because we're favoring less uh, productive producers. Um, and 
the boomers moving out of the workforce, which is reducing economic potential. Interesting, too. And you see the knock-on effects. If we're uh, onshoring, which we clearly are, uh, yep. the cost is going to go up because we offshored whatever, you know, we, we sent it out there because it was, as you say, more efficient but less expensive. So now right. we bring that back in an inflationary environment. So that'll be one other factor that we better you know, consider uh, there. The other aspect that's been interesting, I think caught a lot of people by surprise, was here we've returned, you know, the economy's opened up again and the lack of workers. You know, we're searching around for workers. I think one of the causes, and there's still, I'm sort of finding that there's just initial research coming out on why we have that. There's guesses, but now actual research. But one of them is people took early retirement. Yeah. That, that demographic shift that we've been warned about for a thousand years, uh, you know, has taken place. And uh, I'm thinking uh, out in British Columbia, for example, it's a huge issue with family doctors. Simply yes. they retired. But I mean, you know, a monster issue for all our vaunted healthcare. You can't get a family doctor. And I'm just saying it's so fascinating to see the spinoffs of all of these trends. You know, it's really quite something. And uh, so, yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of influences coming at us. Too, and, and the thing is, one of the problems that I've always faced as a futurist is that people want a simple narrative. Mm. They, 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 oh, AI. Okay, let's talk about AI. And they, they talk about how technology is going to affect jobs, as we did. But what they don't see is that there are always trends and counter trends. So, for example, people being displaced by AI interleaves with the boomers leaving the workforce. So you are getting jobs being eliminated and people leaving jobs, creating holes, and sometimes those overlap, but not always. And when they don't, you get these bottlenecks that suddenly appear in the economy. And inflation is as much a matter of bottlenecks as it is supply and demand. Because, you know, we saw with the supply chain kinks, when you couldn't get, you know, a particular chips, uh, all of a sudden the price of cars went up and the price of used cars went up and the price of service went up and all those sort of things because of knock-on effects. But it was the bottleneck that created the big jumps in price. And that we're still seeing bottlenecks because of the supply chain kinks. But we're also seeing other bottlenecks opening up because people are missing and cannot be easily replaced, like family doctors, like uh, flight attendants, or more particularly, like airplane pilots. Um, there, there, I think it was JetBlue in the States no, it wasn't. It was Ryanair in uh, in Ireland uh, has come out of the uh, the pandemic period very well because they didn't lay off their flight staff. They kept them on 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 staff, realizing that sooner or later they would need them back. And guess what? The flight staff are being loyal to the company that was loyal to them and companies like Air Canada, for instance, where they weren't loyal are finding that people are saying, eh, I'll find something better. Bye. An interesting anecdotal part. Uh, you know, Grant Longhurst is, uh, you know, our producer, uh, along with Dustin Noble on Money Talks, you know. Yep. Well, he's just been to Europe and it just it literally just come back. And I asked him, he says, you know, if they wanted me to do a testimonial uh, for Ryanair, I would. You know, yeah. and I hadn't realized what the, the aspect that you're saying. He just said it was brilliant service and they took lots of different little puddle jumpers without a single hitch. And you compare right. that to what's going on in Canada, you know, yep. holy smokes, you know, yep. it's quite something.
anyways, I'm just saying it's kind of interesting when you, you bring that up. I, I'm thinking now back to what we said also. Uh, I want to talk about the role of education or, and where that should be going. It may not be going, but it should be going. And the role that government can play. Uh, one of my challenges with, again, the government's pandemic response, I thought it was absurd that I got a check delivered to me. I, I absolutely, and by the way, I donated it immediately, but absurd. The one size, and they were doing one size fits all well into the pandemic. It wasn't, you can't, one shouldn't excuse it just uh, the initial panic or something. But uh, again, and of course, we've got advocates of universal basic income. I much prefer to target the people who need it. And again, that's a philosophical decision. So many would disagree with me. But just your take on that side of it, that there are definite people that you can identify who are going to need help. To me, that's where our resources should be going. Yeah, I mean, there, there are, that's a many layered, layered issue. Let's start with education. Let's start with public education. Um, what we have fundamentally, and I, I don't mean to denigrate teachers. Teachers are the, the, really the only, about the only reason why our education system is still functioning. But the education system that we have is fundamentally a 19th century system trying to produce people capable of coping with the 21st century and failing. And if you were to ask most teachers, they would agree. They feel hamstrung by, by politicians that, you know, they talk about back to basics. Back to, you know, I understand the need for fundamentals, but you need a lot more than fundamentals. Back to basics is a prescription for the 19th century. What we need is to address the creative abilities of each individual student, find ways of fostering that creativity, find ways of engaging the interests of that individual and develop those specific individual talents and abilities. I, I did uh, some tutoring for Frontier College, which is uh, teaches literacy to anybody that needs it. They started by teaching it to railway workers on, when they were doing the Transcontinental Railway. So they're over, over a century old. And they now teach to street people and kids who've dropped out of school. And when somebody walks in and says, I want to learn to read, they've overcome the first problem, which is desire, the, the motivation. The first question they ask is, great, what do you want to learn to read? Well, I want to, I want to read heavy metal magazines, or I want to read about cars. or I want... So what they do is they take the interests of that individual and use that to bring them into the education that they need. And that's what our education system needs. But we can't do it with a teacher standing at the front slathering a, a curriculum across the students. Each student should have an individual curriculum. And it, there are ways of doing that, both with and without technology. But our education system is stuck by the politics of education in the 19th century, where you have to have a sage on the stage blathering on to all the, the students in the room, whether they get it or not, whether they're bored or not. So it, public education needs to move away from a one-size-fits-all approach and become customized. Post-secondary education also is changing radically. We don't need as many four-year degree programs or three-year degree programs. What we need are just what we need is just-in-time education with credentials. So it is more important that I learn how to do something while I'm doing it, and get the background and the theory and also some instruction on the practice 
while I'm doing it because I'm much more likely to remember it that way. And it's also going to be in use at that time. So credentialing rather than big blockbuster degrees or diplomas, that's post-secondary education. Ongoing education, I'm sorry, am I, should I pause here? Well, just a quick question on that. And, and but I, 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 I was going to add in the ongoing education component. So just give me one sec. I'm just wondering, how receptive have you found the educational establishment? Because over the years, and you've had direct contact, of course, uh, I've found them very reluctant for any kind of fundamental rethink. And, you know, they'll complain that I said that, but I can give them too many examples, by the way, so they don't want to get into that discussion with me. But I'm just wondering what your experience has been. Pretty much the same. Um, the, the public school system is probably the social social structures are always difficult to change because people live in the past. They are comfortable in the past. They're familiar with the past. The public school system has such diverse the power is diversified so far that it's very difficult to get it to move. The federal government would like to be involved in education, but constitutionally, it's a provincial responsibility. So what the feds do is they throw money at it and entice the provinces to do what they want. The provincial governments have the formal responsibility, but they hand it off to local communities through school boards, except that they have these top-down missives or, or edicts that they say, this is how education is going to go. And sometimes that produces a horror show because... You've got a bureaucrat who's never been in front of 25 bored kids telling teachers in the classroom on the front line what they should be doing and when they should be doing it and how they should be doing it when they really have no idea. And, and finally, you've got individual schools with a principal and a vice principal and a bunch of teachers. And in order to move the education system, you have to affect all those different levels of power. And that's almost impossible. So... You know, I wouldn't hold out a lot of hope that the education system is going to change from 19th century teaching the curriculum to the 21st century teaching credentials and needed skills and abilities. There's also a philosophic issue in, in education between um, enrichment and utility. And the the answer is it shouldn't be either. It should be both. But no, you read, you read my mind, by the way. You literally just read my mind, so you've answered that. Let me come back quickly, though, to, uh, you know, when you finish my high school degree or I'm university and the ongoing educational side. Okay, so we saw this illustrated very poignantly with the offshoring of industries. Free trade agreements are, are generally a very good thing. They create a more efficient system. They create more wealth. They create a higher standard of living because if I am buying goods at a cheaper price, I have more money left over that gives, allows me to buy other things. That's a de facto increase in my standard of living. But it does create losers. It creates a lot of winners and a few losers. And as the free trade agreements were coming in, what governments should have done was they should have said, we know there are going to be losers. Let's look to see what we can do to help them get back on the winning side. Instead, they said, oh, well, laissez-faire, let the markets take care of it. People will move. And they didn't. And so you get this resentment, you know, particularly resentment towards the elites that look down on us and are keeping us down and aren't giving us opportunity. Well, the reality is that the world changed and governments didn't help people change with it. And that's, that's the government's fault. And they fell down. And it wasn't any one p political party. It was all of them.
let, let me ask, uh, you know, time's running short, so I'll ask yep. one of those Barbara Walters questions. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, when you look, at, and you do, you look, of course, at such a broad uh, spectrum of society, what worries you the most? I always call it, what keeps you up at night? You know, there's certain things that grab me, and, yeah. uh, and I, well, I'm, I'm discouraged it, about them. I'm, I'm going to start at, at, the, at the bad side and work backwards as to some of the causes. What worries me most is climate change. Um, we are moving. We do not have a choice as to whether climate change is going to happen or not. We cannot stop climate change. It has already started. Um, climate is a, a chaotic system. Chaotic is, chaos is a branch of mathematics. Chaotic systems tend to stay in equilibrium for long periods of time and then move to a new, new equilibrium. And when they move, they move very quickly. Uh, climate is a chaotic system and it is now moving and it is moving very quickly. People are talking about what will happen at the end of this century, what will happen with our grandchildren. No, climate change is happening right now to us. And all you have to do is looking at the heat waves and the fires in Europe and, and the, uh, the, the, the freeze that took place in Texas and the floods that are happening in Kentucky. And, you know, we have it now. And it's going, the thing is, it's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse fast. Um, and we're not talking about decades. We're, we're, might, we're talking about years in which to, to prepare for the changes to come. We can't stop climate change. We can only stop making it worse. And that brings me to the second step, the thing that worries me second most, and that's politics. Politics are becoming so divisive, the governments are no longer, generally speaking, no longer able to take effective action. And in the face of a, a, a crisis like climate, we need to be taking effective action and quickly. And we do not have government structures that are will, able to respond quickly. And our politics is becoming so polarized that the two sides aren't, will not trust each other. It used to be that the opposition party would make a backroom deal with, with the government and they would move ahead. That's not happening so much anymore. And if you want to look at where we're going, Look at the United States, because we're about 10 years behind them. Uh, well, there's so much to that discussion. I mean, um, just so you know, one of the things I'm critical of, I'm still waiting for a plan. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm astounded how much virtue signaling gets dominated. Uh, you know, one of the things uh, on today's show, I'll talk about how uh, completely ignored the problems in the emerging markets, you know, like as right. if they didn't exist. And right. you're referring to a global problem. So you've got to get global solutions. And I think to me, there's been nothing but uh, like talk over action, over practical common sense. I mean, I'm still waiting for a plan, you know, and, yeah. and it's been whatever we could put an, a date on it, 20 years. That's also politics. Uh, yeah. So, yes, uh, it, it's a monster subject. We'll have to get together and talk about that another time. But it's sure. a monster subject uh, subject there. In the meantime, I got to thank you, Richard, for finding time for us. I always love it. And I want to put you on the spot. I like to do this so why people are listening. So you can't say screw you and hang up. But I, I'd <laughs> love to visit again in the near future. My pleasure. Great stuff. Richard Warzel. Uh, terrific. We'll take a break. Back. Thanks. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. You know, one of the aspects of the Ukraine invasion that surprises people is that Russian oil exports, natural gas exports, have actually increased. And this is despite the sanctions, although many still have to be enacted in Europe. I mean, they were put on and announced, big much ballyhoo, but they come on, uh, you know, at the end of the year. But still, Russia's 
energy exports are actually at records. They've never made more money. At the same time, the ruble also has been the strongest currency by far since the invasion against the U.S. dollar. It's up significantly. Although, again, I, that's uh, due to those exports. Sure, they get the export revenue, but they also have central bank restrictions. That brings me to the shocking stat of the week, thanks to Yanis Kluge. He's a senior associate, German Institute for International and Security Affairs, but he focuses on Russia, especially their economy. So it turns out that energy exports are one of the few areas that are not suffering in Russia. The latest numbers are for June, and they reveal that, just listen to this, that car manufacturing output in June versus last June, June 21, was down 89%. Trucks are down 40%. Okay, so how about other manufacturing? Well, washing machine production is down 58.4%. The production of fridges and freezers, 52%. Let's go to computers and electronics. They're also down. Semiconductors down about 40% versus last year. Overall retail trade turnover in Russia is down about 10% below last year in real terms, adjusted for inflation. The one area that surprised me the most, though, was natural gas production. It's down 23% lower than it was in June 21st. And then you get the impact of some of that. that it's incredible. With natural gas production down, it's no surprise that the chemical industry is also suffering. Ammonia is down 21%. Potash down 32% versus last June. And that translates into lower fertilizer production. Obviously, these are significant hits to the Russian economy. Although history still tells us, I'll tell you sadly, that the resulting economic fallout does not result in regime change. And I don't think they're likely to end the Ukraine war. Ozzy Jurek joins me now. And Ozzy, I've got a lot of things to ask you about, but I want to start with this. You know, when we talk about rising mortgages, obviously important, but is it more important psychologically or straight financially, i.e. I can't afford it? Because you'd have to start with knowing how many people have mortgages in terms of their home ownership, how many have paid cash or paid them off, all of that kind of stuff. And I know you look at that with Ozbuzz.ca. Yeah, it's because essentially I, I, I write a newsletter for investors in real estate and we try to come up with what is motivating people to either buy or sell. And when you take a look in the United States, some of the states, um, like Florida, 45% of the buyers last year paid all cash. And then when you take a look at uh, in the condo sector, it's 33%. So that's quite enormous. Now, are the Floridians wealthier? Or does that really mean they're coming from New York and Chicago and Florida and running away? I mean, it's not just Tesla that went to Texas and it's not just Hewlett Packard. It's all of these companies take their people and they drive house prices higher. And a lot of them come with the cash that they made maybe in another state. Well, actually, Mike, the same is it true in Canada. 63% of Canadians own their home outright. Yeah, I'm sort of surprised at the size of that. You know, if you had asked me, I'm not sure what I would have come up with, maybe a third to 40%. 63%. Now, some of them are older Canadians who obviously have paid off their mortgage over a number of years. But others could be, I'm just imagining, let's say you sold out of Toronto and you moved into Arilla, Ontario, or you sold out of Vancouver and you moved into, you know, something on Vancouver Island that obviously is a, a much greater discount. And that may be their point of moving is lifestyle, but also mortgage free. So maybe that's behind it. 
Yeah, and that's the key as you make it. I mean, StatsCan did a poll and they found the majority of Canadians 54 and older are not carrying a mortgage, a majority. However, people between 25 and 45, they are only 20, 21% of them are mortgage free. So clearly the nest builders, uh, they are just building a, an area, the millennials, that's the ones that might be hurting in a downturn where they're carrying maybe too much financing and so on. So clearly from an investor's point of view, if you keep sort of a cold view and saying, I should be buying in areas where predominantly younger people are buying, the millennials are buying. It's interesting also that in Toronto, apparently some um, 18% of the listings have been canceled. And I would presume those would be cash owners. They're not having any pressure and saying, I'm gonna wait this one out. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. They're just saying, hey, I mean, uh, I don't need to flood and go to a weaker market right now, just as you're saying. I'm, I'm under no financial pressure. Now, I don't want to belittle the people. There's, you know, we're still talking. If we're talking, you know, those kind of percentages of fifth to a third to half own, homeowners subject to a big change in interest rates, well, I mean, that's a very difficult hardship for some of them. So that's there. But it is important to understand the market through that, as you say, that level of cash ownership is a big difference when it comes to rising mortgage rates, the impact of them. And yet still, overall, I think no matter what you look at, whether it's the invert migration or whether it's the interest rates or what it is, what am I feeling like psychologically? And just like in the stock market, it seems to me the way you're up very high and steep in the stock market, there seems to be a correlation of coming down very high and steep. And the, some of that is happening in real estate in, in quite a few markets. And that's why, I mean, we had, of course, Federal Reserve bump up rates this week. I'll talk to Victor a bit more about that. But the thing is, I think what the market liked about um, Chairman Powell's talk was, hey, we may be coming to the end of that. I'm going to be data driven right now. Yeah, it doesn't mean there's not going to be another half point coming up soon, you know, in September, but it's still I'm going to be data driven. At least the market interpreted that as some sort of hope for it. And I think that's what the real estate market may want. Just tell me it's not going to keep going, uh, you know, interest rates rather are going to keep going up like this. So whatever the interpretation, because I think you're just right on. I think the psychology of the market is what's driving it. Yeah, and it has in the past, you know, in 2010 or some of the other downturns we've had, markets seem to walk up and down with the general feeling, how we feel about ourselves and our future. Mainly though, values go where people go and that is the same. Is there a lot of jobs around? Is there is there some certain reason for me to be in that community? But overall, if I feel lousy about the future, if I'm scared to death and interest rates and the news and YouTube and whatnot, you know what, Martha, let's just wait this one out. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what's happened. But also what's happening, Ozzy, is you've been kind enough to join us on a long weekend. I hope you can go enjoy the rest of it. Have a spectacular, beautiful long weekend. Thank you so much. And I do want to remind the, the listeners, if I may, that until August the 5th, we have a 25% discount on our Land Rush conference on September 10. We have 12 speakers, and I tell you, we have the creme de la creme speakers talking about everything, not just the general market, but niches where you can still become very profitable. Like we have Kelly Fry talk about B&Bs, how few people realize, don't realize that in B&B you beat inflation, there are no rent controls and so on and so on. So it's an exciting time. Go to landrushcanada.com and get your discount.
Uh, that's important. Landrushcanada.com. Uh, again, 25% right up until August 5th. So, But you kind of got to get on it. I mean, this is the weekend as we go into it. Yeah. So that's August 5th. Now, the conference itself, just one more time, Ozzy, September 10th. September the 10th, an all-day conference. Great stuff. Ozzy Jerk, you can also find him on ozbuzz.ca. ozbuzz.ca. I'm feeling goofy. That's coming up. And I'm also looking forward to Victor Adair. Fine, Mike. Just, just here's something to think about. How come you never see a headline like, Psychic Wins Lottery? <laughs> I'll leave that with Ozzy Jurek, ozbuzz.ca. You know, one of the things that, of course, is the, I, I would suggest the main characteristic of all the investment markets is the degree to which we just watch central banks. I remember saying that years ago with Alan Greenspan. That, for me, was the beginning of that sort of period. And then it's just become even more intensified as we go through, whether it was the 08 financial crisis, obviously into the pandemic, you know, central banks all the time. And now in the post or semi-post-pandemic period. Uh, Victor Dare joins me on the line right now. Vic, of course, of course, all eyes on the Federal Reserve this week and what they were going to do with the interest rate market, which I think pretty much met people's expectations. You know, people have been trained, I guess, over the years, don't fight the Fed, you know, and, and they're trying not to. But uh, if, if you're going to not fight the Fed, you need to have some idea as to what you think the Fed's going to do. So, where we've been at here, we had the Fed raise rates 75 basis points in the middle of June. And following that in the press conference, Powell made it clear that there was going to be a lot more to come. And interestingly enough, that was the low day for pricing on short-term interest rates, which means the, the high in terms of interest rates since then. Interest rates or the market's expectation of where interest rates are going to be in the future kept falling and falling and falling. And when we had the FOMC meeting just a couple of days ago here, got a goose to hire. So the market is thinking that we've seen peak Fed. The Fed, had, they've showed us you know, how aggressive they're going to be. And, and now they're, the market's expecting them to be less aggressive than we thought, say, a month ago. And that thinking is filtering through to the stock market, the bond market, the currency market, and the commodity market. And, and that's, uh, again, a lot of people were asking me, gee, the uh, Fed moved on its rates up three quarters of a percent and the market rallied. And I think that gets to what exactly what you're saying. The market looked past the immediate and went to, hey, he starts saying, you know, Jerome Powell saying it's not an automatic going forward. It's going to be data driven. That's just one example. And clearly, as you say, the market interpreting that as we've sort of seen the end of the uh, the cycle in that way of the, the the massive rate increases they've got ahead of the curve they think they have I think they're wrong but it doesn't matter that's what they think and the market said hey yippee let's get back to closer to business as usual yeah there's two things that happen on the FOMC meeting one is they they print at eleven o'clock West Coast time their their policy change this time it was a bump of seventy five basis points. The most important part, however, comes a half an hour later when Fed Chairman Powell sits in front of a bunch of reporters and has what he, we call the press conference. And it was during that period of time that he said something or the tone of his voice or maybe he, you know, rubbed his hair or something. You know, the, the market was said, oh, wait a second. 
That means, and away we went to the races. Now, the market, in a way, Mike, was set up for this. And let me just give you this one thought. This has been a hell of a tough year for what we call long-only money managers. At one point, they were down at least 20%. And if they're in more risky stuff, they were down 30 or 40%. These people make a living by having assets under administration. And if you're losing that much money, clients are going to pull their dough, okay? So there's a lot of guys out there that are running money that really need to have a good second half this year. And I think some of those guys are showing up here since uh, the Wednesday market, buying this market aggressively. The Dow is up uh, in going in a Friday's close about a thousand points from where we were at Wednesday's lows. And some of the riskier markets are even more uh, aggressive to the upside. It's fascinating. I mean, it's a different game. I mean, if you're not figuring out what the central banks are doing, first and foremost, it becomes difficult in the marketplace. And one of the things is, of course, this big thing. Is the Fed going to back off? Are we going to get two, two or three, let's say, smaller rate increases? And then that's it. Uh, that's clearly what the market is suspecting. And so I don't think there's any surprise that the market loved that perception and has exploded. And I believe if you're wrong on that, if the, if the market is wrong on that, and all of a sudden the psychology changes, hey, wait a minute, uh, he doesn't have inflation under control. We're not seeing that yet. We're not seeing signs of that yet, that kind of thing. Uh, then I look for a big downturn. I mean, I just find it fascinating. I know I'm repeating myself, but man, it's just all about that central bank policy. Well, it's almost uh, impossible to trade or invest in the market without having some kind of expectations. Yeah. I mean, how do you stay with a position if you haven't got sort of the courage of your conviction? I have thought for the past couple of weeks that we were having a bear market rally. I think, like you, I don't believe the Fed is going to get anywhere near to getting inflation down to 2 or 3% anytime soon. And I think the market maybe is just whistling past a graveyard in some respects, thinking that maybe they will, you know. So I was dead wrong. I was looking for opportunities to be short the stock market, and I did short it a few times. Now, Mike, in my trading experience, the most important question for me, talking to myself or to another trader is, what are you going to do when you're wrong? And what I do when I'm wrong is I go, hey, I'm wrong. I, I need to get out. Keep my losses small. I don't like being wrong. I don't like losing money, but that's part of the game. And if you're going to just stand there and say, no, doggone it, I know I'm right here. I just got to give this position a little more time and, and, and it'll turn around. I know it will. Well, I just can't do that. So uh, I was wrong. I lost some money. I mean, less than 1% of my trading capital, so I can certainly live with that. But from a trading point of view, you, you really got to know and, and be able to identify what does it mean that you're wrong? I'm smiling because there's one other category there is pretend you're not wrong. There's, as you say, oh, yeah. the conviction hasn't changed. There's the other that morphs into, I'm ignoring that. Or, you know, and I've, I've done this myself. I don't, thank God it was like 30 years ago, but I certainly have done that. All of a sudden in the old days, you know, you didn't get on your internet screen. You looked in the newspaper the next day. You know, all of a sudden you stop, you stop checking out the stock price. I'm just laughing at myself here because I recognize that category of also being wrong. You know, so, uh, no, it's it's interesting because that's what a professional trader does. That's the message I don't want to lose to, to anybody listening here is you got to know when you're wrong. You got to pull the trigger when you're wrong. You can't hallucinate 
that, yeah, it hit my trigger, but I'm pretending I'm right. You know, that kind of thing. So that, that's, that's really valuable ex- uh, advice because that's how you turn, as you say, totally acceptable. Part of, the, part of the game is the markets go up and down. But when you turn that into something more catastrophic is when you hold on for what are emotional reasons, like I can't take the loss. I've known people over the years who just were not suited to being in the investment markets because they couldn't admit the mistake. They couldn't emotionally take the loss. And that's where real trouble begins. By the way, we have politicians who've clearly done that. They're doing it to this moment on the climate change agenda. Well, I think you and I had Kenny Loggins' uh, theme song or something playing years ago. You know, you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Oh, yeah. Kenny Rogers, by the way, not Kenny Kenny Loggins. That's it, yeah. There's so much truth to that. But anyway, to get back to markets, you and I are both thinking that the central banks aren't going to get inflation down. Friday morning here, we had the CPI in Europe come in just a shade short of 9%. You know, the the price of natural gas for delivery this coming December is now trading at about eight times what it was trading a year ago. What this means is we're going we've got supply shortages and prices up and we're going to have rationing. I mean, it just seems inevitable over there. Rationing is going to produce a weaker economy. We've already got European uh, consumer confidence at record lows. I mean, there's just. Man, there's a lot of misery in Europe, and yet, and yet, and this is how markets are, and yet the euro has bounced a little bit against the U.S. dollar, a couple of cents anyway, from, from 20-year lows. However, one of my favorite uh, the metrics that I watch and have watched for years, the euro has now made a new all-time low against the Swiss franc. And that, that's just you know one of those temperature gauges as to how good or bad things are in Europe. But you can always count on politicians to give you a good laugh. And I'm wondering, I was laughing at Christine Lagarde, the head of the uh, European Central Bank, saying she doesn't see any reflection. I'm sorry, I can't even say it without laughing. <laughs> Not seeing a recession coming and you realize the incredible disadvantage German manufacturing is at. They're already closing, you know, plants in Germany because they're, they're just not competitive. When the U.S. and Canada are paying one-sixth or one-seventh the price for the energy component of their manufacturing, you know, they're in trouble. I can go on list, list on list. But also, come on, you have to have a good laugh in the States when they change, try to change the definition of what, uh, the long-standing definition of what a recession is. It just tells you sort of the clown world we're operating in. Uh, and you have to sort of push that aside and look inside it. Uh, it's hard for me to see that the global uh, globe won't be in recession. I mean, China's property management problem is just massive, much bigger than uh, it's the old Dennis Gartman. There's never just one cockroach. We said that as soon as Evergrande had their problems, gosh, months and months ago. He said, well, there's going to be a lot more. Well, there has been. So I still see that uh, releasing pressure on the Fed to raise rates. Uh, so I'm just saying these are the dynamics that you're having to factor uh, as a trader and I'm factoring as an investor. Yeah, I think if we were to try to put it into one sentence, uh, markets, I think, are trying to establish or find a balance here between where future inflation expectations may be and recession expectations. And, you know, so that's going to ebb and flow. And right now, there's kind of a sugar high here down on Wall Street. The market wants, I mean, the industry wants to see the market go up. We've had the Dow rally about 10% from the lows of uh, June when the FOMC meeting happened then. 
But I think that's what's going on here is we're having the, the ebb and flow, and it'll depend very much on your time frame. We, we keep talking about that. So I can really uh, I can really feel for or commiserate with people who are expecting that the Fed's going to struggle here to meet their targets, and that will have to show up in the market. But in the short term here, we've got a, a very strong market to the a stock market to the upside. Let me just finish with this, just to remind people, just a little reminder. It depends what country you're in. You know, if we think the Dow Jones has moved in U.S. dollar terms, try it in the euro terms. You know, or if commodities have done X, try it in those terms. It's always important to keep in mind when we're assessing where capital is moving, like what the currency is. I can certainly see, and, and we've been predicting, money would move out of Europe. Where are they going to go? The U.S., that's traditional. It's the only big enough market to absorb that kind of capital. Uh, so I'm not surprised the stock market and the bond market are beneficiaries of that money as reflected in a lower euro and a higher U.S. dollar, you know, over the last several months. But I can see that helping to propel, you know, U.S. stocks. I mean, I'm sitting there looking at the future of some U.S. companies, domestic ones, still looks brighter than a lot of what I'm seeing in Europe right now when their energy sources are uncertain. Yeah, Mike, in, in closing too, my line on the currency markets for 40 years has been that capital will flow to the United States for safety and for opportunity. And there you go. Victor Adair, victoradair.ca. Vic Scott promised me a great chart this weekend. I'm going to be looking it up. victoradair.ca. Thanks, Vic. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. First, a few straightforward facts. A single person, well, that means you and me, in the rich world uses more fossil fuel energy than all energy available to 23 poor Africans. Wow. Two in every three people in Africa, that's estimated over 600 million, something like 600, 625 million, have no access to electricity. It takes the average person in Tanzania around eight years to consume as much electricity as any one of us uses in a month. Let me repeat that. It's incredible. It takes the average person in Tanzania about eight years to consume as much electricity as any one of us uses in a month. Now, look, the thing is the connection between our standard of living, including our health, life expectancy, and energy, the correlation is massive and it's well established. It's undeniable that we in the West have our lifestyles, develop these wealthy lifestyles thanks to exploiting fossil fuels which the International Energy Agency says, by the way, provides about three quarters of a percent of our energy used. Well, they go on to say, though, here's the thing, that even if we met all the climate commitments, well, they'll still provide the majority of energy used in the Western world in 2050, the Western world. See, that's the context for this week's Goofy. The European Union has just reiterated its stand to provide no financing for fossil fuel projects in Africa. That's a repeat of the G7 commitment, you know, consistent, and what's called the Glasgow Statement signed in COP26 in November by 39 nations, including Canada, committed to end any support for fossil fuel development in Africa by the end of this year. But the hypocrisy is unbelievable. Okay, it's believable, but how about breathtaking? Because at the same time, Europe's ramped up its own coal production, as well as coal imports, as I mentioned earlier including some from Africa. Why? Because they want to protect a standard of living that only a minute percentage of people in living in Africa could ever afford. 
But it's not just energy. I mean, uh, members of the European Commission oppose helping Africa increase fertilizer production to offset the sanctions that are you know, happening in Russia. Why? Listen to this, because in quotes, supporting fertilizer production in developing nations would be inconsistent with EU energy environment policies, end of quote. After all, I guess what's a little starvation as long as it's not in the West? I'm going to finish with this. It's an open letter by agricultural engineer Jasper Makadu. He summed it up beautifully in quotes, Dear the rich world, Pushing hard on the developing world to enact policies that hurt its people isn't cool. Our top problems are poverty, hunger, and corruption, not climate change, not EVs. We need lots of cheap, reliable, plentiful energy. End of quote. But it's incredible. The insensitivity, and I think most of all the elitism that defines the climate agenda in the West. By the way, on full display at COP26, you saw the private jets, fancy hotels and restaurants. Well, it knows no bounds. They clearly didn't even consider the impact of COP26 policies on developing nations. That's what India's Prime Minister Modi made very clear at the close of the conference. But it's the ignorance that stands out for me. They're willing to finance the intermittent power of solar and wind and the billions of tons of mining that would require in countries without stringent environmental standards. And they'll still say it's good for the environment. Maybe no surprise, as I said in the quote of the week, these are the people who are burning wood pellets taken from clear cuts in North American forests and still calling it carbon neutral and green. Wow. That's all the time I have this week. Just a reminder, you want to do us a favor, is why not encourage a friend to listen to Money Talks and subscribe? I hope you do subscribe to Money Talks. Uh, do it through uh, Money Talks tweets. Do it through Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, etc. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca. Be much appreciated. Simple as that. I would appreciate the support, appreciate the help. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this long weekend and have a terrific week.